let's turn together to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. So if you're not familiar with where it is, you should not have to turn too many pages to get there. Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to be looking towards the end of that chapter. And conveniently, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to use that, the church Bible in front of you, Genesis 4 is on page 4. This is super easy and convenient. We planned it this way on purpose. But Genesis chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm just going to read two verses for us, the last two verses of the chapter. Verses 25 and 26. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Here's what God's word says to us through the book of Genesis. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This morning, we're starting a study on prayer. And as soon as that sentence came out of my mouth, this morning we're starting this study on prayer, there was a reaction in all of us, in each one of us. Not the same reaction necessarily, but different reactions. For some of you, the reaction was boredom. Like, all right, I'm getting my phone out earlier than I normally do in the service. Like prayer, who needs to think more about prayer, talk more about prayer? Some of you, the reaction was guilt. You immediately felt this, yeah, I know I should be praying more. I know, I know I don't pray enough. Some of you, maybe the reaction was apathy. Like this is such an elementary topic. With, With all that's going on in the world or with all that's going on in my life, don't I need to talk about something a little bit more advanced, something a little bit more meatier than prayer? Or maybe there were just questions that came up in you when you heard we're going to talk about prayer. Like, what's the big deal with prayer? If if we pray all the time, does it even accomplish anything? Does it do anything? Does it work? Well, our reactions to this topic, whatever your reaction was, our reactions reflect how we see prayer. And how we see prayer reflects how we see God. So if you're bored with prayer, there's something about God you're bored with. If prayer, the word prayer just makes you feel guilty, then you likely see the Lord as always disappointed with you, that he's never really happy with you. He never thinks you're doing as good as you can. If you feel apathetic towards prayer, then you probably also feel apathetic towards God. And for many of us, myself included, We struggle to pray and we struggle to think about prayer rightly because our view of prayer is too small. And our view of prayer is too small because our view of God is too small. It's too flat. It needs dimension to it. It needs some some layers to it, some life to it. And so that's why for the next few weeks we're going to go through this study of prayer that we're calling the story of prayer because we're going to travel from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, to enlarge our view of God and help us better engage in prayer and help us better enjoy prayer. Prayer is actually, whether we realize it or not, prayer is meant to be enjoyable. It really is. 
And so hopefully the Lord will use his word to bring about those kinds of changes in us. Because the story of prayer that we're going to trace throughout the Bible, it speaks directly into the experiences of the stories of, of our lives. Whatever's going on in your world right now, the story of prayer speaks into that. And as we see the beginning of prayer today from the end of Genesis chapter 4, the first truth I want us to learn from, about prayer is this, is that prayer is a reply to God's promises. Prayer is a reply to God's promises. And, and we'll, we'll talk through what that means. We, I worded it that way on purpose. But as we step into this, you might, you might expect we're going to start with the how from the very beginning. Like, here's how to pray, and here's the specific steps and practical things, but we're not starting with the how. We'll get to the how. We've got to start first with the why and the what of prayer before we can think rightly about the how. So that, that's kind of the order we'll go in this morning is the why of prayer. Very simple, the why of prayer, the what of prayer, and the how of prayer. So let's start with the why. You ever thought much about why people pray? You ever thought much about why you pray, if you do, or why you pray when you do? There are many different reasons why people pray, and there's many different reasons why people don't pray. But the spot in the Bible where prayer begins shows us the true why, the, the real sustainable reason to pray. And it may seem like a small, random spot in the Bible to highlight, but I think these two short verses at the end of Genesis 4 hold these layers and layers of truth for us about why we should pray and what prayer really is. So I'll show you what I mean. Let's start with verse 25. Genesis 4, verse 25. It says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. There's some words there that tell you we're coming in on the middle of the story, that, that some things have already happened. You, you see in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and then it says, Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So many of you, you know the story, you know what have already, what's already happened, and you're studying this in life class right now. But if you don't, and that's okay if you don't, here's just a really quick summary. We're only in the fourth chapter of the Bible, but a lot has happened up to this point. A lot has happened. Stuff has happened up to this point that's still affecting every day of our lives today. What's happened is that in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters, the Lord creates the universe, everything. Everything just by speaking. Huge, giant things and then tiny, molecule-level things. He creates all of it. And, and he says it's all good, and he creates people, the first two people, Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 3, God's good, perfect creation becomes polluted by sin, by Adam and Eve rebelling against God, disobeying God's command, and so it brings brokenness into the world, brokenness between people and God, brokenness between people and people, brokenness in just all of creation as a whole. The world is not as it was meant to be anymore. Well, tucked into the chaos of Genesis chapter 3 is this promise that sets us up for the rest of the Bible. You may have to turn back a page 
But look back with me in, in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15. This is after Adam and Eve disobey the Lord and bring on this curse on themselves, on the serpent who is Satan, on all of creation, and tucked into this curse and chaos is a promise. Verse 15, God says, he's talking to the serpent, to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity, so I'm going to put conflict between you and the woman, and then pay attention to this next phrase, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises here there's going to be one main divide in the human race. There's going to be those who are the offspring of the woman, Eve, and those who are the offspring of the serpent, Satan. And we think, well, what, is, what does that mean? Those, that, this was a long time ago, so how could this still be the case? Well, to be the, the offspring of the woman or Eve means th- there's going to be people who base their lives on God and his truth, who trust in the Lord, who trust in his promises and follow him. But then there's going to be people who base their lives on the lies of the serpent that he's been telling ever since this very moment that we read in Genesis 3. And this is the divide. There's those who know God, whatever you want to call it, those who know God and those who don't, those who trust in Jesus and those who don't, those who worship God, those who worship something else. This is, these are the two lines. But God also promises at the very end of verse 15 that there's going to be a specific offspring, a specific person down the family line of Eve that's going to come and save the world because she says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You think about which is worse, your heel getting hurt or your head getting hurt. And he says that the offspring of Eve is going to bruise the serpent's head even though the offspring of Satan is going to bruise the offspring's heel. He's going to come and crush evil. He's going to come and rescue the world. He's going to come and crush the serpent, Satan himself. So this sets the stage for the rest of the Bible because the question is, who's the saving one going to be? And you're saying, well, we just got done celebrating Christmas. We all know. Spoiler alert, Jesus came. He's the Savior. That's true, but you have to under- we have to understand the layers to get a sense of why this is such a big deal. And that's why it's so shocking when you get to Genesis 4 because there's expectation of, well, some, somebody from Eve's line is going to come and save the day. And you get to Genesis 4 and their first two kids, one kills the other. That's why that's like, we just got this promise and this is already happening. The first effects of sin come into the world as Cain kills his brother Abel. And it seems like the promise fails almost as soon as it starts. It's this background that make Eve's words in verse 25 of chapter 4 so significant. Because she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. She sees the birth of Seth as a sign that God's promise is still moving forward. She uses the same language as the language the Lord used in verse 15. I'm going I'm to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, 
And she says, God has appointed, God has set, God has sent another offspring for me, meaning God's promise is still going on. It's a sign that proves the truth of Genesis 3.15. That wasn't just a joke. That wasn't just empty words. God meant what he said. He's keeping his promise. And then this promise line continues. Just, Just look at the first part of verse 26 with me. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. So Cain killed Abel, but he could not kill off God's promise. Seth is born, Enosh is born, and the the line keeps going, so the promise keeps going. You might be thinking, "What what in the world does all this have to do with prayer? It's a great question. Well, this is where the connection comes in, is that we pray because God promises to save, and he always keeps his promises. That's our hope in prayer, because God promises to save, and when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is the promise of salvation. It's, it's this prototype, a little bit, of what would later become known in the Bible as the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that this is the solution to our sin and the solution to the consequences of our sin, and God has promised it, and God has provided it through Jesus, and so we have the privilege to pray. This, I think, takes us to the big picture, the heart of why we pray. Because God is committed to saving his people. That's why we pray. That's why we can pray. Prayer starts with God saving us, and prayer is possible because God saves us. Because God is holy, and you and I are the opposite of that on our own. We're sinners. We're just like we saw in Genesis 3. We're sinners. We're broken. We're, we're imperfect. We're ungodly on our own. We cannot go into God's presence on our own. God is holy. He cannot be around sin. He cannot just tolerate sin and evil and wickedness around him. And so we can't go into God's presence on our own. We, we can't just automatically pray on our own and the Lord hears it. We need a mediator between us and God. And God, in his grace and his kindness and his mercy, has sent that mediator to us through his son, Jesus. And so that now, anyone who trusts in him, we can go to God in prayer. Prayer is necessary in this in-between time when Jesus has already come, but he hasn't yet come back. Prayer is necessary in a world where we're still waiting for God's promises to come true. Prayer is necessary in a world where where evil is strong, but prayer is a privilege in a world where God's salvation is stronger. It's important that we keep this foundation in mind. And some of this, you may already know these things that I've talked about, but, but we have to understand the foundation of prayer for us because so often our minds drift off in strange directions with prayer. Because we're tempted to think, God hears me more when I obey. Or God hears me more if I, if I read my Bible, that kind of turns the volume up on my prayer in God's ear. There's a lot of people praying all the time, so if I can do really good, maybe God will hear my prayer more than he hears other people's prayers. But that's just us thinking God is like us, and he's not. Or maybe we think, God didn't hear my prayer because 
of something I did this week or something I didn't do. God didn't hear my prayer because I'm not as good as he wants me to be. There was a time when I was in high school and I, I was a brand new Christian and I thought, uh, I've been learning about prayer. People at this church, probably some of you, have been teaching me about prayer and the importance of praying. So I had this list of things, these people and different things that I was praying for on some regular basis. And I would pray, I would go through my list and pray. It's probably freshman, sophomore at the time in high school. And I would go through my list and pray. And then later, this is probably in the morning, and later in the day, I would realize that I had disobeyed the Lord. I had sinned in some way, broken a command of his word in some way. And so I just thought, well, that just erased all those prayers I prayed this morning. They were about to make it to God, but as soon as I sinned, wiped them out. I just had this, this mindset of prayer of like, it's, it's me that gets my prayer up to the Lord. Well, that's the most opposite of the gospel that there ever is. The Lord in his Mercy and in his humility has bent his ear down to us and has come all the way to us through Jesus. And the only reason he hears our prayer is not because we're good and godly, but because he's loving and gracious. True prayer is a result of being welcomed by God into his family. And so we pray to him as our father. And prayer is a reply to God's promises a reply to God's promises. So, so since we've laid this foundation of the why, let's look at the what. Because there's a really short phrase at the end of Genesis 4 that I think helps us ex- understand what prayer really is. This small section here in Genesis shows us the beginning of prayer, not just because of the, all that context we just walked through, but also because of this gripping phrase at the end of verse 26. I don't know if you noticed it when we were first reading it, but let's look back at it together. Let's just jump at the beginning of 26 so we can get the flow of how things are written here. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And here's the phrase I was talking about. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Think slowly about that phrase. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The first part, I think, is really interesting. At that time, the time when Seth was born and then Enosh was born, at at that specific time, in that day, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why then? What was important about that time? Why did people start to call upon the name of the Lord? Why did they start to pray then? Because nothing else is mentioned about Seth that's significant. Nothing else is mentioned about Enosh that seems really important. All we get get is their names. So why at this time, why begin to pray now? Well, I think from the way the story is put together, and remembering the promise in Genesis 3.15 that we just looked at, about God's rescue coming from someone in Eve's family line, I think it seems that those like Eve here that are trusting in God are beginning to realize the fulfillment of this promise is going to take some time. They might have thought as soon as Eve had Cain and Abel, one of these two sons is going to be the one that saves us. And it wasn't. And then they had Seth. Maybe he's going to be the one that saves us. And he wasn't. 
Then Seth had Enosh. Maybe he's going to be the one that saves us. And he wasn't. And so they're waiting on God's promise, and they trust that God will keep his promise, but it may not be immediate, so people begin to pray. And I think this leads us to understand what prayer at its core is really, what it really is. At that time, here's the second part of it, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, if you just read that for the first time, and maybe you've read the Bible a lot, maybe you've been to church a lot, maybe you haven't, but that sounds like the most kind of religious, churchy way to describe prayer that there ever was. Like if you just thought, if you were in a group of people that said, hey, let's take some time to call upon the name of the Lord together, you would think, that guy's really spiritual. I would just say pray, but he said call upon the name of the Lord. That was really impressive. But he's not, it's not just trying to be churchy language. It's not just trying to just like get a certain word count. Couldn't just say pray. Had to say call upon the name of the Lord because it had to be a certain length. This was a reason Moses writes it this way. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon means to cry out, to ask. And the name of the Lord, that's that's where all the weight is in the phrase. The name of the Lord. Lord, we, We saw this last week. We've seen this multiple times throughout the Old Testament. But Lord, in all caps in your Bible, is the personal name of God, Yahweh. The personal name that he gave to those who would be in a personal relationship with him, a covenant with him is the language the Bible uses sometimes. And we, we still use names with specific meanings today because it, it says at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That name, Lord, Yahweh, had this meaning of I, I will be who I am and I am who I will be. I am the God of goodness and graciousness and steadfast love and faithfulness forever. I make promises to my people and I keep promises to my people. This is who I am now. This is who I always will be. So to say people began to call upon the name of the Lord is they didn't just call upon any God. They, were, they weren't just shouting out, hopefully some God somewhere hears this. They were crying out to the Lord, the God, a specific name with a specific meaning. We, we use names with specific meanings today. My name as much as I don't want to tell you this, means crooked nose. So please don't, I'm not going to make eye contact with anyone after the service is over. Shout out to my parents for such a meaningful uh, name for me. Other of you have names with better stories and better meanings than that. But this name, the Lord, Yahweh, it's a reminder of God's character. It's a reminder of God's promise. Every time you see those short four letters in the Bible, There's layers of history behind it and layers of meaning underneath it that this God has promised to save his people and he's merciful and gracious and he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So if we put all this together, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. If we put all this together in some kind of definition, we could say prayer is this, that prayer is asking God to fulfill his promises. Prayer is crying out to God to do what he has said he will do. When we pray, this is what we're doing. It's true throughout the Bible. We're going to see this more and more each week as we go through different parts of the Bible. 
But when we pray, we are asking God to make his promises true. We are asking God to do the work he has promised to do. God has promised to save his people. And this promise has come true through Jesus' first coming that we just celebrated at Christmas and will come full circle when Jesus returns. So prayer is what we do as we wait for God to make everything right and straighten everything out. We pray, Lord, do what you've promised to do. Now, you might think there's a lot of different categories to prayer. There's prayer of thanksgiving. There's prayers of confession. There's lament. There's when we're asking God for things in prayer. And I would say, in light of what we see here in the Bible, all those types of prayer are different expressions of asking God to come through on his promises. When we confess, we're asking God to come through on his promise to forgive. When we lament and and mourn things that we see in our own lives or, or injustices in the world, we're asking God to come through on his promise to make all things right through Christ. This is why it's important for us to think about how we define prayer because it means anytime we pray, we're not starting a conversation. It's not like, God isn't paying attention to us, and we have to pray to get his attention. Prayer is not just talking to God. It is our response to a God who has already spoken to us. He's already spoken to us through his word. So this means that when we pray, as much as it may feel this way, we're not speaking into silence. We're speaking into a conversation that God himself started with us. We're speaking to a God who's already spoken. We're speaking to a God who's already working. We're speaking to a God who's already aware of what it is we're about to pray to him about. So what this means for us is that prayer starts with and stands on the reality of who God is, not a reaction to our circumstances. If we only pray as a reaction to our circumstances, then prayer is going to feel very kind of flat and break glass in case of emergency type thing. But prayer is part of our relationship with God. If it's just a religious task, then prayer is just going to be a lifeless chore, like taking the garbage out or doing your taxes or whatever it may be. If prayer is some kind of emergency alarm, it's just going to feel like a last resort that I've tried to do everything and fix this all in my own power, but I can't, so I'm going to pray. But if we see prayer in the context of God's promise to rescue his people and to rescue us into a relationship with him, prayer becomes this joyful privilege. It's a reply to God's promises. That's that's the what of prayer, and we have the why of prayer. We pray because God saves. Prayer is asking God to come through on his promises to save. So I want to take just the last couple minutes and briefly, we'll do this a little bit each week, but the last couple minutes and just briefly speak at how does this translate to the how of prayer? Like practically, what difference should those truths that we just walked through, what difference should those make for us? Just two brief encouragements here for how these truths should practically affect how we pray. And the first one is connected to what we just talked about. First encouragement is this. See prayer as a privilege. See prayer as a privilege. 
it would help all of us, me too, to think about what makes prayer a privilege. When you don't want to pray, remind yourself that it's a privilege to talk to the Lord. Remind yourself of what he did through his son Jesus to make it so you can pray. When you sit down to pray on your own or with other people in a life class or with your family or with some friends, take a moment just to reflect on the privilege. There was a a mentor I had in college, and whenever he would be leading us as a group or if I was just hanging out with him one-on-one, whenever he would go to pray for a meal or if we were doing a Bible study, he would start to pray, and he'd say, okay, guys, let's pray, and we'd all bow our heads, and it'd be silent for probably four seconds, but it felt like 70 seconds, just quietness with a group of other people is always weird for us to deal with as people. So he would just go, let's pray. And then he would start praying. And one time I finally, as I got to know him better, I asked him, hey man, um, why do you always have a little awkward silence right there before you pray? You just trying to think about what to pray? And he said, no, I'm reminding myself of who I'm praying to. He said, I'm reminding myself that I'm talking to the creator of the universe and the God who saves and the God who speaks and the God who's with us right now and is holy and he's righteous and he's just and he's good and he's gracious and he's merciful. And so that's why I take a few seconds. I was like, oh yeah, I thought that's what you were doing. I was just asking to to make sure. Yeah, I thought that's what was going on. But that was such a paradigm shift for me. That sometimes I just, all right, let's pray. God, blah, 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 amen. Do I realize whose presence I'm in? Do I realize what a privilege it is that because the love and mercy of God have made prayer possible for us, it's not a chore. It is the highest privilege. It is a joyful thing. It's an expression of our relationship with God that we know this king and this all-powerful creator as our father and as our friend And that this relationship was bought for us by the death of Jesus. And so through Jesus, Romans 5 tells us this. Now anyone can have full access to God through faith in Jesus. That you and I have the ear of the creator and king of the universe. So practically, I think maybe a way to remind yourself of the privilege of prayer is to do what my buddy did. You could just take a few seconds to... Think about who you're about to pray to. But also, my encouragement for you, and this is something I'm trying to work out in my own life, is replace something right now in your life with prayer. I'll tell you what I mean by that. I say that because our lack of prayer, my lack of prayer, is not for a lack of time. There's going to be a day where streaming services and social media accounts will show lack of prayer was not for lack of time. And I'm saying this to myself. This is not me saying, you people need to pray more. This is me saying, Cam, you need to turn some stuff off and, and pray some more. But, but my encouragement is just for you to start somewhere. So rather than picking up your phone and checking social media during a night when you sit down or when you're waiting in line somewhere, maybe you take those few moments to pray. For me, one of the spots that I'm working on this right now is just in, in time when I'm in the car by myself. And granted, my... Often my drive from my house to work is, if I hit all green lights, about three seconds, which is great. But there's also times where it's so easy for me to get in the car and immediately turn on music or immediately turn on a podcast 
or immediately turn on what it, whatever it is. And so right now I'm just trying to, let me take this just to pray. Maybe I'm going to pray for the person I'm about to meet with or pray for a meeting I just came from, a situation, or pray for one of you that I know is going through uh, something difficult at the time. So maybe you replace your, your, your drive time and your, your, your scrolling time. Maybe you replace some TV time. Maybe we replace even some sleep with prayer. And again, this is not me saying, if you make it harder on yourself, that's holier. I'm not saying stay awake all night and pray. And sometimes the Lord may lead you to do that. But I'm saying we could all probably get up a little bit earlier or figure out a way to make that happen so we could spend some time with the Lord in prayer. The goal here is not a religious task. The goal here is enjoying the privilege of relating to the Lord throughout the day. So whatever that looks like for you, do that. Work towards that. So this is my first encouragement is see prayer as a privilege. Second encouragement, final thing is this. Shape your prayers around God's promises, not your preferences. If prayer is a reply to God's promises, then let's shape our prayers around God's promises, not our preferences. And this connects back to a little bit something we talked about just a few minutes ago. That too often we see prayer as an activity that comes up as a reaction to our circumstances. Trials come, we pray for them to end. Life is hard, we pray for it to get easier. And that's not wrong, but we are to pray in line with God's promises, not our preferences. This means we should pray for ourselves, we should pray for each other, we should pray for our church, our community, our family and friends in a way that's shaped by God's gospel promises. That I'm going to pray for this person or for myself to know God better. I want to pray for wisdom or for this person to have wisdom to know how to live for God in this specific situation that they're in right now. I want to pray for me to have strength or for my friend to have strength to obey God as they step into work or school or their team. I want to pray for the gospel to spread in our community and in my neighborhood and in my family and in my workplace. So it means we pray things like, Lord, help me to see this trial I'm going through as part of your great work in my life and in the world. We know God has an agenda. We know God is working. So we're trying to shape our prayers around his promises that he's always with us and that he's always working for our good. And it means we pray things like, Lord, use this trial, use this job, use this relationship, use this struggle, whatever it is, to make me more like Jesus and to bring other people to know him. It means we pray things like, Lord, help me to trust your promises and use me to encourage other people with those promises. Prayer is asking God to come through on his promises So the content of our prayers should reflect those promises. One of the ways that the Lord has taught me this so often is by praying with many of you. One of the best ways to learn to pray is to pray with other people and to be around people who know who they're talking to when they pray. You can hear it. You can notice it. And I've learned so much from you as a church about this, just as I I sit in groups or in meetings or in a Bible study, whatever, and I hear people pray And I thought, man, not just I want to pray like that person. I want to know God like that person does. 
It's so helpful to pray with other people, and we have a lot of different ways you can do that here at our church. There's various groups that meet throughout the week that you can find information about on the calendar in the bulletin or by calling our office. Uh, There's a a men's group that meets every Tuesday morning at 6.30. We go 6.30 to 7, um, hard stop at 7 because people have to go to work and, and different responsibilities. So we spend some time, spend a few minutes talking about the passage we're looking at on Sunday, and then we spend some time praying together. There's various groups of ladies that pray throughout the week, groups of of moms and people in other seasons and stages of life that meet to pray throughout the week. Of course, praying with your life class is is vital, is huge. Praying together as a family is huge. You may not know this, but there's people that pray for this service during the service every single week. There's people that are praying for you and us right now as we're sitting here together. And they're always looking for people to join that team. It doesn't automatically mean you miss the service Maybe you want a reason to kind of scoot out every, every few Sundays or something. That's something you have to wrestle with and think through. But there's, there's a way to sign up for that, that prayer ministry right out. If you go out these main doors in the corner, before you go out the front doors, you'll see a way to sign up for that, that prayer time as well. All of this is just to say, we don't need to wait until we feel like I'm good enough to pray. We don't need to wait until we feel like I'm now I'm at the level where I know enough about God to where I can pray. A kid does not wait until they're eight years old to start talking to their dad. Once God has saved us and welcomed us into his family, we pray. They're imperfect, they're messy, but we trust God's promises and we pray to him in a way that's a reply to those promises. Thinking back on our reactions from the beginning, when you think about prayer, Do you first think about how much you do or don't pray? Or do you think about God's promises that make it possible for you to pray? If you and I just first think about, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I don't pray enough. You're right. I should pray more. I never said that at all today. I tried, I hope, to remind us all of God's promises so that we enjoy the privilege and, and look for opportunities to spend time with the Lord in prayer. Long time, short times, one sentence, 30 minutes, whatever it is. As we unfold the story of prayer over the coming weeks, I pray that God makes us people, that God makes us a church who are known for calling upon the name of the Lord because we trust him and we know his promises and we know he always keeps them. Let's pray.